This morning, again, as we're in Philippians chapter 4, I invite you to turn there. This is the time where we worship through the preaching of God's word. And so Philippians chapter 4 is where we're at. Why don't we this morning begin by reading the text, and I will read the first seven verses. Philippians 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Well, it could be said that Christians ought to be distinguishable in this world. In fact, the one who is living as a citizen of heaven, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus, will therefore be unmistakable in this world. And I think Paul has touched on that a number of times as he's referred to the world a number of times in this epistle. If you just turn back to chapter 2, in chapter 2 we see a reference to the ways of the world as he writes in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. You see, these are the tendencies of the thriving selfishness in this world. And so we are not to do that. In verse 15, again, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in this world. And so we ought to be passing the test. Accusations not sticking when flung at us. While at the same time, distortions and perversions are embraced all around us, promoted, even celebrated, and most notably by people in positions of power and influence in our society. But we are not like that. Again, in verse 16, he writes, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Indeed, really, we are lights who hold forth the truth as missionaries in this world. We have a mission, and we carry that out by holding fast the word of life, while at the same time waiting for the day of Christ. Again, in verse 17, we see Paul describing how he's poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith. He rejoices and shares, I rejoice and share my joy with you all, he writes. And so 
we see how he's living and giving selflessly in the here and now, really, currently. And then in verse 18, you too, I urge you, here's an imperative, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The Philippians commanded to rejoice according to the example that Paul set. And again, in verse 1 of chapter 3, we see this same imperative as Paul commands believers again to rejoice, this time in the face of dogs, evil workers, and flesh mutilators, really, verse 2. And he says this, in light of his having been set apart unto the gospel, this according to the testimony that he shares throughout chapter 3, he's an apostle who has been called by Christ, and therefore no longer glorying in the flesh, no longer looking to his own human achievement, no longer trusting in bloodlines, heritage, or external signs, but in the reality of the circumcision of his heart. He's no longer believing that righteousness is derived from the law, but rather that he believes that righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's no longer a persecutor either, a persecutor of the church, but now he is a staunch protector of the flock. And we could say much more, even from all that he describes from his testimony. There's a third reference here to distinctions made between how Christians are to be and how the world currently is. We see that in chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18. And there we saw several differences between heavenly citizenship and the world, the way the world operates. They walk differently. They have different destinies, different ends, different preoccupations, different definitions of glory, different motivations, different future anticipations. We couldn't be more different than the world in each of these regards. And now as Paul closes out his letter, as is very common to Paul, he issues a series of final imperatives to those who he's addressing in the letter. And he does so very purposefully. He does so purposefully to isolate characteristically Christian piety to place both individual and corporate expectations surrounding genuinely faithful, reverent, godly, and devoted living. That's what piety is, to be reverent, to be godly, to be in a state of devotion. And so in verses 4 through 7, Paul lists for us six fundamental distinctives of the one whose citizenship is in heaven. And he does so so that you will know how to stand firm in the Lord while still on this earth. So we'll see six fundamental distinctives of the one whose citizenship is in heaven so that we too will know how to stand firm in the Lord. And for the sake of time this morning, I've broken this into two parts. And so We'll cover the first three distinctives this morning, and then next Lord's Day, we'll finish with the final three. And so first, the first three are a distinct priority as seen in verse four. And then secondly, we'll see a distinct poise in verse five. And then at the end of verse five, we'll note thirdly, a distinct 
perspective. That's what we'll cover this morning. Next week, we'll look at a distinct peace, a distinct persistence, and a distinct pledge. But first, for our purpose this morning, let's consider the Christian's distinct priority. And I'd ask you to look again at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, it's not surprising that Paul gives this command right here. He's just exhorted these two women embroiled in dispute. Both are behaving selfishly, pridefully, resembling more the world than a Christian and fostering a spirit of disunity in the church and probably ensnaring others as they do so. And so Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord. And it seems especially fitting here to call the church to correct attention, to correct action. But notice, let's notice just for a moment here that as he strings out these imperatives in verses four and five and six, that there are no connecting words. There's no conjunctions, no ands or alsos. And so each of these serves as a Stand alone command. And that's significant. These imperatives are, are independent of one another. Now we can speculate, we can weave them together based on the context that surrounds them. But really, these are weighty enough to be taken on, on their own. And we could really even have an individual sermon for each of these imperatives as each one needs to be received, but not only received, also lived out in obedience. Now, I would argue that joy and rejoicing are exclusively Christian terms. They're exclusively Christian terms. The world cannot lay claim to joy, nor can it lay claim to rejoicing, although it no doubt does, and does so often. In 1 Peter 1 and 8... We read, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And just to unpack this verse a little, one commentator writes, joy is an understanding at the heart of the Christian existence that encompasses both elation and depression that can accept with submission events that bring delight or dismay because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. It's a settled and confident peace of mind no matter the circumstances rooted in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's much more than emotion. Or a mood. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah writes. Or I should say, Ezra writes in Nehemiah. The joy of your Lord, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What does this mean? What does it mean when the joy of the Lord is your strength? Well, it means that in all circumstances, that you look to the grace of God to carry you through, even as he is sovereignly over those circumstances. And you do so with a, with a settled heart, with a settled mind. 
And not only joy, in, with joy, but also with rejoicing. What does it mean to rejoice? Well, to rejoice really is to put joy into action. It's an external evidence of an internal reality. It describes a state of glad affection and well-being. It's joy really expressed. And it's expressed from the overflow of a regenerated heart. That source of joy and the manifestation of one's pleasure and delight is Christ. Christ. And what Christ has done in saving sinners. And so it's never sourced in self. You can't whip up some joy. Rather, it's the fruit of the Spirit evident in the believer. And so it's evidence of the supernatural at work in the believer. Because, and because it's supernatural in nature and not produced by the flesh, you can't make this stuff up. This is often said. You can't. But it's provided for you. And so let's make four observations then from verse 4, specifically about this imperative to rejoice. Let's notice the command, the duration, the frequency, and the basis. All of these can be found in verse 4. First notice, Paul is writing in the imperative. Rejoicing is, or to rejoice is commanded of all in the local church. It's not optional for the Philippians, but rather this needs to be a chief priority. It's prioritized. Second, we see its duration. Paul is using a a present tense here. And so this is meant to describe a continuous, ongoing action throughout the believer's life from beginning to end. Rejoicing in the Lord must persist from the time of salvation to the time that one's life comes to an end and enters into the presence of Christ. That's the duration. Third, let's notice the frequency. When are the Philippians to rejoice? Well, Paul says, always. Literally, at all times. And notice that Paul repeats the imperative here. Obviously, this is of vital importance that he would repeat the same imperative twice in a very short span. And it's like he's saying, Philippians, right now, rejoice in the Lord. And when I see you months or years from now, still, you'll hear me tell you to rejoice in the Lord. And so always be found in a state of rejoicing, no matter the circumstances. And you may remember me saying last Sunday that Paul's joy was relational. It was never circumstantial. Circumstances change. And so rejoicing needs to be grounded in the one who does not change. That's the frequency. And now, fourth, the basis. Paul has already commanded believers. We saw this last week in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. And then in verse 2, live in harmony in the Lord. And now the Philippians are to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the sphere or the realm of Christ. What does that mean? A believer in right relationship with Christ, in union with Christ, and enjoying that union with Christ, is identified through his atoning work, through the power of his resurrection, now reconciled to God and in fellowship with him. 
And if anyone were to ask you, friend, why are you rejoicing? One answer would suffice. Because of Christ. It's because of Christ. That's why I rejoice. Turn to Acts chapter 11 for a moment. Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11 and beginning in verse 19, we see this account of the scattering of the church. Stephen was martyred. The persecuted church scatters. And those who were scattered, what did they do? They rejoiced. They proclaimed the Lord Jesus Christ. They preached the gospel. And as a result, the word says, a large number believed and turned to the Lord. As a result of the gospel preached, this caused a large number to believe and turn to the Lord. But notice what is said in verse 23. Now they send Barnabas to, to witness this. And verse 23 says, when he, Barnabas, arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. What was the source of Barnabas's rejoicing? Well, he had witnessed the grace of God and the salvation of many through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel proclaimed. And we see this again in Acts 13 and verse 48. This time, Paul and Barnabas proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. And we read, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And so we see that sovereign election initiates rejoicing in the Lord, the realization of sovereign election. Again, in Luke 10 and verse 20, where Jesus said, Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Remember how Paul is we remember how Paul has just referred to the Philippians, right? What has he said? He said, those whose names are in the book of life, and no doubt this causes rejoicing as a result of Christ's finished work, that names are recorded in heaven, and this brings rejoicing at the recognition of God's grace. We know the Philippian eunuch rejoiced at his salvation in Acts chapter 8. We see in Romans 12, 12, where the practical aspect of Christianity is described and how it's to be uh, lived out, where Paul writes, rejoicing in the hope, that hope being the hope that we have in Christ, it brings rejoicing. Again, in Romans 12, 15, Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a commanded contagion. This is supposed to be contagious. This is a biblical super spreader, so to speak. Again, in Romans 16 and 19, where Paul writes, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. We know that obedience is the evidence of one's love for Christ. And this is what caused 
Paul's rejoicing, that he could see in a tangible way the love that the Roman, that the believers in Rome had for Christ. And so to rejoice in the Lord is the expression of joy rooted in the person and work of Christ, whether in one's own life or in the life of another as it's realized. And in rejoicing, our Lord is then magnified further. Now, one commentator also writes this. He writes, the injunction to rejoice in the Lord is so self-evidently right that it's embarrassing that we should have to be reminded of it. Is it not? Should we need to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord? I think of when rejoicing comes easy. Rejoicing comes easy on Sunday mornings. Rejoicing comes easy when the saints are gathered together, most of the time at least, right? Rejoicing is easy when life seems comfortable, when the fruit of the Spirit is abundantly evident in one's life, whenever one meditates upon the grace of God, whether that be common grace or special grace and salvation, seems like rejoicing can come easy. When I consider the promises of God given to me, I rejoice. When I see others walking in the light, growing spiritually, even when I recognize my own spiritual growth, there's rejoicing. Or when I see God's providence on display, or when I see God's sovereign will, when that becomes made known to me, or when I obey from a willing and reverent heart, all of these, all of these times, it would seem that rejoicing in the Lord would come effortlessly. This week, we reminisced around a supper table about how hard it was to drive to church on Sunday mornings, knowing that the RCMP were watching and waiting for us. This just being a few years ago. The question is, did you rejoice in having been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name? Because that's what was occurring in that moment. Did you rejoice in that? I know I found it incredibly difficult Those drives were difficult. The only way to be relieved was to petition God, to come before him in prayer. And that's become our our constant habit now on the way to church as a result. James 1, verses 2 to 4, James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so even when there seems like there may not be time to rejoice, when it's difficult to rejoice, we are still to consider it all joy, knowing that no situation is beyond the Lord's help. The emotions and feelings that arise in intensely difficult situations in no way diminish God's worthiness. And so we must rejoice and rejoice in him. Can you rejoice in the midst of trials and tribulations and afflictions? Can you rejoice in the midst of illness, disease, disability, death? 
Are you found rejoicing amidst life's hardships and financial difficulties? Do you rejoice in persecution? Can you find rejoicing in your heart while struggling through broken relationships, challenging relationships, struggling relationships? Can you rejoice when those hostile and indifferent unbelievers in your family that are your friends, your acquaintances, those people at work, when you try to proclaim the gospel to them, can you still find reason to rejoice even in those moments of their rejection? Are you rejoicing in these opportunities? Matthew Henry writes this. He says, there is enough in God to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst of circumstance on earth. And I would agree. There's no reason why we ought not be rejoicing always. But we need to watch our heart as well, right? We need to carefully watch our hearts. Notice Judea and Syntyche. They started out with great evangelistic zeal laboring alongside Paul, did they not? I bet they were rejoicing as they were participating in that gospel ministry. But then their hearts were turned, no longer living in harmony in the Lord, and no doubt not rejoicing in every moment, not rejoicing in the Lord as they ought, nor standing firm in the Lord for that matter. And so there's a warning for us then in these opening verses of chapter 4 that we need to remain watchful even as we contemplate desiring to be found rejoicing always. Again, we need to watch our hearts. The question could be asked, are you a joyful Christian? Now one one of my favorite books in most in more recent years has been Martin Lloyd-Jones' Spiritual Depression. It's a sermon series that's been compressed into a book. And in it, he writes, there should be no such thing as a miserable Christian. And I quote, it is, a very, sad, it is very sad to contemplate the fact that there are Christian people who live the greater part of their lives in this world in such a condition giving the impression of being unhappy, cast down. Their souls are disquieted within them. They live in tension and a troubled state. In a sense, of depressed, in, in a sense, a depressed Christian is a contradiction of terms. And he is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. Nothing is more important, therefore, than that we should be delivered from such a condition which gives other people looking at us the impression that To be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid, and that the Christian is one who scorns delights and lives laborious days, close quote. That's the exact opposite of joy. A joyless Christian is contrary to biblical Christianity. Now, we can look to Paul and his example. What were Paul and Silas doing while they languished in jail in Philippi. Do you remember? They were singing praises. They were singing hymns, praying. This is how they were found. Rejoicing amidst life's, some of life's more 
difficult moments. Friends, are you obeying Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord always? Or are you currently in a state of disobedience? You must always be rejoicing in the Lord. And there's at least one, I would say even two tests that we could take immediately. We can do this immediately. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 14. Paul's words here to the Corinthians ought to bring rejoicing to the hearts of Christians. We read in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. This describes penal substitutionary atonement, right? That Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty that we deserved, his death in place of ours. He is our substitute and an atonement, knowing that blood is required for the forgiveness of sin, the sacrificing of blood, and so he is the atonement, resulting in the forgiveness of sin. Again in verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, one who has been saved under this gospel is transformed, no longer living for themselves, but living for Christ. Again, in verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. This describing our regeneration, where we no longer are according to the flesh, but now according to the Spirit and walking according to the Spirit. Able to. Again in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so there we see that it's through Christ's atoning work that we've been reconciled to God. Again in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, not counting their trespasses against them. This is justification. This is now where we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, God no longer seeing us according to our trespasses, but rather according to the righteousness of Christ. And then finally, in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is is where we recognize our union with Christ. That he is now our righteousness. That we are in union with him. Identified with him in his righteousness. That's a glorious gospel. 
If that doesn't bring rejoicing to the Christian heart, nothing will. There's nothing. And maybe you sit here today and you haven't surrendered yourself to that gospel. Maybe you haven't come before God and asked for the forgiveness of your sins, recognizing that you have sinned, you've rebelled against him, and that hell awaits if you remain in that condition. Well, I would urge you to turn from your sin, to turn to Christ, to trust in what he has done as described here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, rather it is, that you would trust in this gospel. And that's one test that we can all take immediately. Are we rejoicing in this? But there's a second test that we can take, and that is to examine ourselves in light of this second distinction that we'll see here now in verse 5. And so we've seen the distinct priority of the one who, whose citizenship is in heaven, standing firm in the Lord by rejoicing in the Lord always. Now secondly, a distinct poise. Take a look at verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Paul issues here a second imperative. Nosteto is the Greek term here, meaning to make something become known. The believer's gentle spirit is ascertainable. It's made ascertainable to others. Others can learn this about you. They can see it in you. In fact, let your gentle spirit become known to all men, Paul writes. Not only to other Christians in the church, but to all that you encounter anywhere that you are. That you would be ruled by this gentle spirit. Epiikes is the Greek term here that he uses that refers to a gentleness. To being, being forbearing. That there would be a a patient, a patience in waiting, patiently waiting, even in the midst of suffering. It's a yielding spirit, a gentle, kind, courteous, and tolerant spirit in the believer. And we see it used to describe one of the qualifications of elder in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, where Paul writes that the elder is not to be pugnacious, but gentle. Peaceable. This describes what an elder is to look like. This, this character quality. But then again in Titus 3 in verses 1 and 2, we see now Paul describing how all believers are to approximate this. He writes in Titus 3, 1 and 2, that we are to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle. There's that word. Showing every consideration for all men. I think the words that surround the word gentle there really help, to help us to understand what that gentleness all accompanies. It's accompanied by a submissive heart. It's accompanied by being subject to authorities, by being ready to act in every, with every deed with goodness, to not malign, but to be peaceable, to strive for peace even. 
to show consideration for others, even ahead of yourself. There's an aspect of humility there as well. Again, in James chapter 3 and verse 17, James writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, there's that term again, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. This is to be the believer. This is what we are to let make known, let become known to all men. This is the way we are to live our lives. And it's evidence that there is wisdom from above, that there is godly character within us. Christians are to possess this reputation of integrity by a choice or habit, not standing rigidly upon your own rights, but one who is content with less than even what the law would give if the law were on your side, right? It's a, it's a giving up of all that would otherwise necessarily be owed you. This typifies the Christian who doesn't insist on having his own way, not being offensive or needlessly assertive, not being defensive on the other side of that, insisting on having your own way, not constantly strategizing to be in control, not nitpicking about the processes that you find yourself in. Can you imagine if either Eudea or Syntyche behaved this way? If they would have carried out a gentleness with one another when attempting to restore the relationship that they would have allowed room for grace, even if they were rightfully entitled to more, even if the other wasn't fulfilling their obligation perfectly, but they showed flexibility and let it go. You know, sometimes you won't receive the request for forgiveness in the exact words that you'd like to hear, right? And you sit there and you stew because you want to hear it articulated a certain way and it's just not coming that way. We need to set that pride aside and we need to, we need to show gentleness. We need to let our gentleness be made known to all men. In these instances, a gentle spirit, one with a humble graciousness, will still administer grace, even when, even when found to be you know, on the short end of the stick, so to speak. And this would serve as, a, as an example for others to follow. I think of how many court cases would be settled immediately if this is the way people operated. How many disputes in the church would see their end immediately? How many relationships would be restored immediately? How many mediations would end immediately? How many mediators would be unemployed, or lawyers for that matter? How much sin would be avoided if this were your established standard and that you stand firm in the Lord in this way? Friends, let us never overlook who this poise is predicated on, right? We can't do this ourselves, but we do have a supreme exemplar. And we read about him in Philippians 2 and 5. 
have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know he set the example whereby even when reviled, he did not revile in return, First Peter 2. When he was oppressed and afflicted, did not open his mouth, Isaiah 53. Nor did he commit any violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He is our example. It's him that we rejoice in. It's him that gives us the strength the ability to let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. This needs to be us, each one of us. And so that's the distinctly Christian poise that the heavenly citizen puts on vibrant display. This needs to be us. Now finally, thirdly, a distinct perspective And we see at the end of verse 5, Paul writes, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And there are really two ways that this is treated by many, this pithy statement. First, some receive this as referring to the Lord is near spatially. In a Psalm 33 or, or a Psalm 34 or Psalm 145 sense, listen to what the psalmist writes in these two Psalms. Psalm 34, 18 and 19. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so describing a nearness, the Lord is near. Again, in Psalm 145, 18 and 19, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And so there's a sense of nearness, of deliverance that is immediate because the Lord is near. And many would say that this is the way that this is to be taken. Others would say that this reference is more to be taken temporally, pointing to timing. In James 5 and verse 8, we read, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. That there's a need to remain committed and watchful, ready for Christ's imminent return, for the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to me, it seems like this would be more probable. And I say this in light of some of the eschatological references that Paul has just used. We see in verse 20 of chapter 3, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about the the great consummation where we're given our our, uh, resurrection bodies. But then again in chapter 4 and at the end of verse 3, he refers to those whose names are written in the book of life. And so it would make perfect sense that he is again referring to the imminent second coming of Christ and that we would be found rejoicing in the Lord 
making our humble graciousness known to all men, even as we eagerly anticipate his return. And I think a case can be made that both are in view here, spatially and temporally. But for that, we'd have to view this, the Lord is near as a a hinge or a bridge between verse 5 and verse 6. And so we'll explore that a little more next Sunday as we get into those final three distinctives of the one whose citizenship is in heaven in order to stand firm in the Lord. Those distinctives being the priority or the ones that we covered today, the priority, the poise, the perspective, and then next week, covering the peace, persistence, and pledge. Now, there may be some here that are going, but Jake, currently I'm struggling with priority. I'm struggling with poise. And I'm struggling with perspective. Let me give you some thoughts on how you can work on these areas specifically. First, be in the word. Be in your Bibles. and Be in prayer. Be in communion with God. Asking him. Asking him to help you in this area. Psalm 19, 7 and 8. Listen to how the word is described. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. If you want that priority restored and be found rejoicing in the Lord, spend time in the word and spend time in communion with God. Another way that you can address this shortfall is by being in regular and increasing fellowship with other believers. Don't isolate yourself, even in moments of intense difficulty, but rather allow the body to do what the body is to do, to edify you, to build you up. Thirdly, I'd ask that you reflect on God's grace in your life, that you Look back on his faithfulness because great is his faithfulness. That you try to find ways to recognize his providence at work in your life. And then finally, strive to see the glory of Christ through daily obedience, through your daily obedience. To his disciples, Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. There's a promise there. And so work in these specific areas to restore that priority, that poise and perspective that is characteristic, that makes the Christian distinct in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the exhortation, even the command to rejoice in the Lord. 
And in you, there is much reason to rejoice. Thank you for your grace. Father, may we be found in every circumstance to be rejoicing in you. And Father, I pray that we would be able to portray a gentle spirit to all men as we desire to be winsome, to proclaim the gospel, to call others to saving faith, while at the same time knowing that great offense can be can come up against us, but Father, we ask that you would help us to exercise that humble graciousness that Paul talks about here. And let us forever have our eyes fixed on the return of Christ as we live these out. We pray in Christ's name, amen.